welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Peter Labuza, a PhD candidate in the USC Department of Cinema and Media Studies and the host of the Cinephiliacs podcast. We will discuss his work on how lawyers and contracts have affected the development of the motion picture industry. So welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you so much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I can't say how happy I am to be meeting you in person for the first time, interviewing you here, right here in your very own living room. <laughs> so this is a lot of fun. It's very exciting for me to meet someone whose work has been very, very helpful to my, uh, my own thinking as well. So mm. thank you. Cool, cool. So you are a media scholar, but a lot of your work focuses on the way that contracts have in the motion picture industry have changed over the years mm -hmm. and also how lawyers and contracts have shaped the way that the entertainment industry and the motion picture industry in particular sort of structures uh, sort of the, the way that motion picture deals get made mm -hmm. and the relationships between the different parties. Um, for listeners who might not be that familiar with the entertainment industry and how it's been structured over time, I wonder if, if we could start with your Velvet Light Trap paper yeah. and kind of have you describe sort of what the motion picture industry initially looked like mm -hmm. as it started to grow and then sort of how it changed in the 1960s. Sure. So I think for those of the listeners who've maybe watched some uh, movies from before 1960, um, what a lot of people call classical Hollywood, uh, a lot of the way that this gets um, set up is this is sort of known as the classical Hollywood studio system. And that idea studio system comes to that when motion pictures are born in the 1890s, it's sort of, let's just say, call it a free-for-all. Everyone's sort of out there in little clusters um, creating films, getting them into theaters, it's sort of a little bit of a kind of a crazy free-for-all system. In the 1920s, though, obviously, um, a lot of what we call studios are born. And studios at this time try and focus on three parts of the industry. They're going to produce the films. They sort of create um, what a lot of people compare to a Ford factory in terms of the production model that you have a lot of different labor units working together to create films. And then they're going to distribute them. They create these exchanges uh, throughout the United States and eventually the world, especially after World War One, that allow them to bring these films that they've created to uh, different theaters. And of course, they also have exhibition that they own the major theaters in a lot of the major uh, sort of downtown areas. So if you are in a major city in the United States and you see a theater that's called the Paramount Theater, say here in Oakland, that is a theater that used to be owned by Paramount Pictures, for example. And of course, they also had a lot of practices that a allowed them to, even if there were independent theaters in smaller towns, basically control what was being shown in there. And they had a huge monopoly on the industry. So there was a lot in done in terms of both production, distribution, and exhibition of controlling the market through these five majors. Uh, that would be Paramount, Warner Brothers, Metro Goldwyn Mayer, RKO Radio Studios, which is no longer with us. And I'm going to forget get the last one at this moment. It's not Universal. It's not Columbia. It's not United Artists. Uh, 20th Century Fox, of course. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so a lot of the ways if it, uh, the industry worked, especially, is um, you were what was called a contract player. If you were an actor, a director, a writer, um, any sort of labor, you belong to a studio in the way that someone, say, works for Google or Facebook. You don't, you don't go and freelance your labor necessarily. There are some exceptions during this time, but that kind of gets more complicated. Um, but basically, you signed a contract with, say, Warner Brothers in 1932, and each year you might get a small raise and you would stay there as long as you uh, they wanted you to and sometimes they could suspend you to keep you there if you wanted to go work somewhere else. Sometimes they would loan you out to another studio for a different film if you're a particularly well-known writer or director uh, or especially actors but basically you belonged to the studio for many many years. A lot of this shifts in the 1940s with two really particular um, uh, court cases, one in the California Supreme Court and one in the United States. The California Supreme Court being de Havilland v. Warner Brothers, which is around the actress Olivia de Havilland, who had been with Warner Brothers, had been loaned out for Gone with the Wind, this famous, you know, the biggest film of all time, and basically wanted out of her contract. And she sued and basically got the uh, the court said that uh, no one could work for a studio for more than seven years. This is uh, California Labor Code 2855. It's still with us today. And basically that allowed a lot of people to break away from the studios and work sort of independently, whether in independent production groups or independent cells. And of course, the other one that I'm sure many listeners of yours are familiar with is United States v. Paramount, a giant antitrust case that basically topples the industry in terms of forcing studios to get rid of exhibition. They're basically, it's an antitrust lawsuit that says this is a monopoly. And so you can continue to produce films, you can continue to distribute films, but you can no longer exhibit films in the way that you've been doing. You can't do these sort of control monopolies on independent theaters, nor can you own the theaters. And so what really happens going into the 50s is even though the theaters are allowed to still produce their own films, most people are moving independent so the real thing that the the companies that we know uh own at this time and continue to do is that they own the distribution networks and that's a lot of what uh where my story of where lawyers become really important picks up mm-hmm. well so one of the things that you note in the paper is sort of in light of all of these both it seems like legal but also kind of industry demand Mm -hmm. changes in the motion picture industry you saw changes in the way contracts look and how contracts were negotiated take place as well so i wonder if you could just kind of describe briefly what a typical kind of contract for an actor or a director would have looked like during the studio era Mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of what a typical contract began to start looking like as we move into the more kind of independent era of the 1960s. Sure. I think there's a really great line from Martin Gang, who's a really famous lawyer from the 30s and 40s, who represented a lot of the famous talent. And he said, each year I went into um, Louis Mayer's office, who was the head of uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer, and I would negotiate a salary raise for Cary Grant and how many pictures he was going to do a year. And that was really it. Obviously, there's a lot in the contracts if you go back and read them in the 30s in terms of uh, there would be morals clauses related to, you know, if an actor sort of becomes toxic because they have a big uh, publicity scandal, the studio could drop them for whatever reason. But mostly the most 
uh, mostly the important things that they needed to do was negotiate how many pictures they were going to do, when they needed to show up to set, whether the actor or director had any say in the script that they could do. Usually they did not. Um, and how much they would get paid. And that was really it because there weren't necessarily these other aspects um that needed to be attuned to. There were no net profit shares, which are obviously now one of the most important parts of the stu- uh, of the um, studio system as we know it today. And the most important thing that then really changed once you get to the 1950s and 60s, a lot of the actors, the writers, the directors, they formed these production companies. And because they're independent, there's now, there's these questions of essentially like how and where are they going to get the money to produce their films outside of the studio system? And this is where the contracts really become more complicated and why they become longer, much more complex, because it's not just, oh, how much I'm going to pay you to appear in this movie we're making as sort of an employment contract, but we're going to loan you X amount of money necessarily um, to make a film that we will distribute. So there's a lot of questions around who controls it. Where's the labor necessarily going to come from? Um, who? How are the profits of the films going to be shared? Where's the film going to be uh, made? Where's the film going to be edited? All these questions really because of sort of this, you know, these negotiations between now two corporations, obviously one with a lot more power and a lot more money, but another that represents talent, which the studios at this time are desperate because because the one thing that they know can still, you know, get a film uh, to theaters is if it has a big star. So if you have a production company with a script and a star ready to go, there's a lot of negotiation that needs to happen between this world of how this film and where is it going to get made and how is it going to look and operate. And um, those start to become the real more important questions than necessarily, well, what's the salary going to be at the end of the day? Mm. Well, it seemed like one of the mm-hmm. things that was really kind of a major shift in the industry was really like the role of the studios in the production mm-hmm. of a film. In a sense, it sounds like during the studio era, the studios were, you know, really deeply involved in the creative choices mm-hmm. of making a film and had sort of distinctive studio styles associated with each studio that they wanted to maintain a kind of product consistency. Whereas it seems like the shift that you're describing is one in which the studios are starting to operate more like finance companies and less like, like, you know, production. Exactly. And this is part of what I really get into the investigation in the Velvet Light Trap article is especially a place like Warner Brothers, which this article really is about. Warner Brothers has one of the most iconic styles of any studio in the 1930s. It's known as a place of, you know, hard-talking actors like Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney, as well as femme fatales like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. It has such a strong studio presence, partially driven by the head of the studio, Jack Warner, who is just such a character who, throughout the dissertation that I'm working on, he is always at the end of every story. If Jack Warner wanted something and they couldn't do it because of the way that the contracts worked. Um, One of the things that I chart in this article is looking at one director, Arthur Penn, whose most famous film is Bonnie and Clyde, a film that maybe people have seen, you know, this very interesting sort of artistic, violent, sexy take uh, that's made in 1967. But a 
decade before he made that in 1958, he was on the Warner Brothers lot and he was making an independent production. But when you read the contract, it's not independent in the way that we might think of because one of the things is they're required to use all Warner's lots. They're required to use all Warner's labor. Um, the script needs to be entirely improved by Warner Brothers, and you know every sort of check, every sort of st- uh, you know prop they're using, everything's being really, really controlled by the studio still. And there's a sense that even though it's this film that's made by an independent production company, the goal was to make it still reflect that Warner Brothers ethos. By the time you get to the '60s, and a lot of this is driven by the studio United Artists, which of course was never a studio; they never had a physical lot; they were always for independent production um there's a sense that that identity is less important and people are certainly less driven to films by seeing the warner brothers identity as they are by specific stars and directors or whatever sort of is driving the artistic uh community of this time especially in the 60s at a time where this sort of artistic renaissance of hollywood is happening so you see that when warner brothers goes to make a deal memo to cover the um the studio the production company that's going to make it, which is sort of two companies uh, between Warren Beatty, the star of the film, and Arthur Penn, who's directing the film, there's a sense that, well, they're going to finance the film, but they're not really interested in who is in the labor as long as they're being paid guild rates. They don't really care where it's going to get made. They just want to make sure that the film is under budget. And that's, of course, the been the joke of Hollywood for many years is keep your film under budget and we'll let you do whatever you want. <laughs> Um, this seems to be driving a lot of these decisions. But you see the way that um, even the way that the profit shares get uh, played out, you know, in the if you read the contract in the 50s, the way that profit sharing was working for the film that Arthur Penn made then called The Left Handed Gun is like, OK, we're going to first pay back this part and then we're going to pay back this part and we're going to pay this. And we have to make sure every um, sort of uh, department is paid for as we share the net profits. It's a really, really complicated process that goes. And then once you get to Bonnie and Clyde, they're doing this different method that's really, really interesting. They're just like, the film needs to make $5 million. The film's made for $1.6 million. So it's like 2.8% times the budget is essentially the goal. And it's like, you will get no money until this film makes $5 million. And then you can have 40% of the gross. Now, 40% is a lot for a film. Uh, You know, if you're even a star like Warren Beatty, it was a lot to give him 40%. And it's interesting because the studio... Did, did not expect Bonnie and Clyde to make money. They expected it to make around you, this number. This is why the contract's so interesting. This is how much they expect the movie to make. $5 million. There's a famous quote from Joan Didion, who worked in Hollywood in the 70s, who said, you know, the studio would prefer it if no film made anything uh, beyond that essential point. Like, that's the goal of the movie. And so that's the story of Bonnie and Clyde is actually, it's a contractual failure for Warner Brothers because the film makes $30 million and they lose all this money to Warren Beatty and Arthur yeah. Penn, not expecting to make it. And so I think there's a lot of issues that is being played out as studios are figuring out what is their role as a financial institution. And many of the studios, of course, abandon their lots. They're renting it for television production, which is much more sort of uh, this sure 
absurd thing. And I think a place like Warner Brothers that still today has this law is doing a lot of balancing between whether they think they're a financial institution or whether they're essentially, of course, like, you know, this production lot. And now, especially today, whether they're a corporate brand. Yeah. What was interesting to me, too, how you sort of describe how certain players had a hard time making that transition. Mm -hmm. Like from the paper, it really sounded like Jack Warner himself really struggled with moving from, you know, being really involved in the productions Mm -hmm. to really being more of a financial player. And like maybe the transition to the independent kind of cinema approach was sort of the end of his career yeah i mean there's a sense you know there's a there's a lot of stories about what are known as the moguls the moguls who sort of ran these were not necessarily the heads of the companies they didn't were not say the ceo of warner brothers the studios were all kind of actually owned by uh sort of corporate holding companies in new york where a lot of the accounting happened but the moguls were the ones who ran the lots in los angeles and you know there's there's really really great books out there that sort of collect the memo of these various moguls, especially like Daryl Zanuck is a really, really famous one. There's, I think there's an entire book out there that's just the memos between um, uh, Daryl Zanuck and John Ford, or I think there's one between David Oselznick and Alfred Hitchcock, of course, two directors who have very, very well-known names, but, you know, had to negotiate with the people who were in head of production. And, you know, these were people who, if you read like the memoirs and stories, spent every night at the studio watching dailies of every single film being made and had so much control and the fact when they lost this control really kind of lost their place in the studio system and Jack Warner of course leaves Warner Brothers in 67 but one of the things that I noted and discovered um during the making of Arthur Penn's first film, The Left-Handed Gun, he was someone who'd come from live television, so he was so used to shooting with multiple cameras. And the um, cinematographer that they hired was an old-school Warner Brothers person who had allegiance, of course, to Jack Warner. And he doesn't light film sets for multiple cameras. So he would literally leave a mark on the clapper for Jack Warner when he was watching the dailies to show him shots which side of the set he had lit for the camera so Jack Warner would know to throw out the other daily. So in a way, it's, you know, this very classical hierarchy and these sort of issues as independent production did not necessarily mold in the way that the studio wanted. And I think there's a sense that as these new executives who are coming in, people who are trained in business schools, people who are trained as lawyers, they really understood deal memos. They understood how contracts work they didn't know anything about making movies they might have questions or opinions but their questions are way more about financial issues of investment and sort of publicity opportunities than the actual content of films themselves that i think people like jack warner were really obsessed with Mm. so you also share with me a a a new article Mm -hmm. that you have coming out in well hopefully the near future not too long from now yes it Um, has been accepted for publication it's just publication takes a while (laughs) (laughs) and it's about uh it tells a really interesting story about a lawyer named leon kaplan Mm -hmm. who was a really important figure in this kind of transitional period in the entertainment industry so i wonder if you could start by kind of just saying a little bit about who leon kaplan was and how you you know became interested in his work and sort of how you 
how you got so much information yeah. about it. I mean, Leon Kaplan was literally the start of this dissertation project. I mean, it was really coming. I had been starting to do some research on this period of the Hollywood studio system in the 50s and 60s, this period of transition between USV Paramount and what now we call the new Hollywood of the 1960s and 70s, a period in which you got films like Bonnie and Clyde and The Godfather and Jaws and these sort of, you know, blockbuster artistic films of really, really unique style. Um, So I've been doing research on this period, kind of interested in this question of live television that I mentioned with uh, Arthur Penn. And I've been looking at um, materials related to director John Frankenheimer, who I guess is best known for this film, The Manchurian Candidate. And when I was looking through papers related to one of the film's um, he had done called Seven Days in May with Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas's papers are at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Amazing archive there. I love the archivist so much there. Um, there was this law firm. That, I mean, first of all, most of the materials that I found were all about negotiating the contract. And I was just like, well, where's the material about making the film? And it's like, no, 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 no. 95% of what's here is just about negotiating the contract between Kirk Douglas in the studio, Kirk Douglas and John Frankenheimer, and just so much. And a lot of it had to deal with this one law firm, uh, Kaplan Livingston. And so I had kind of gotten interested and said, well, maybe there's something here about lawyers. There doesn't seem to be that much material out there about who the lawyers who ran the industry were. There's one article about Loeb and Loeb written by Molly Selvin that's really, really good. That's about kind of like the first law firm of Hollywood going back to the 20s and 30s. Um, But I got interested, and there's a really funny story about this. Um, I was starting to try and research and learn more about him, and I wasn't finding that much. And I'm at a bar in Hollywood. I'm waiting for some friends, and I think my phone had died. And so on the table I was sitting at, there's a Hollywood reporter. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll open the Hollywood Reporter uh, and just read what's on. Literally did not notice the cover said it's the lawyer issue because Hollywood has a lot of lawyers and so they have an issue every year related to lawyers. I open the page, I literally flip open it says the untold story of Leon Kaplan. I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. I've been trying to find so much about this guy for years and this is what it shows up. And basically I learned um, he had died in 2002. Um, he had started a memoir that he only got about 25 pages in. But luckily, the um, I contacted the person who had put together the issue, who put me in touch with uh, his daughter-in-law and his son, Bob Kaplan. And they were so happy that someone was interested in their father's story. They had a bunch of boxes in garage uh had been sitting there had probably got exposed to some fumes that i didn't want to get exposed to and a lot of dust and luckily now actually these boxes are going to the academy of motion picture arts and sciences best known for doing the oscars every year but this is the story i got interested because leon kaplan uh to now narrate was a lawyer who started in the 1930s, he goes to USC. He graduates in 1930 like a lot of Jewish lawyers. Uh, he can't join any of the white shoe law firms. And so he kind of falls into entertainment law, which is something that most of the larger law firms in Los Angeles uh, didn't necessarily want to touch. There are some relationships going on, but it's not really as strong. So there was a lot of opportunities to get interested, uh, to work with enter, uh, people doing uh, motion picture making and radio and television and 
and early television at the time. Um, so he just kind of works his way up. And in particular, he becomes really important to United Artists, this studio that I mentioned before, which goes through its own transition between uh, the 1940s and 1950s, where uh, originally it's owned by Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford, two of the biggest stars. And instead it switches hands to two lawyers. And Leon Kaplan kind of becomes the go-between for a lot of independent producers who go to United Artists to get their films financed, and thus kind of creates this firm that's all around creating these motion picture deals at this time. And really what he sees his uh, ideas going is representing the artistic concerns of the independent producers with the financial concerns of the studio and finding a way to really marry those together. And this is kind of why I sort of pause in the article that one of the issues that comes up in this transition is who's going to win out, art or money? And if you read the historiography of Hollywood, no one ever seems to solve this question. And what I kind of posit is the law, the lawyer itself is the person who has to deal with this question and the place that he does it is the contract. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like from the paper, what you're describing is Leon Kaplan in a way kind of seeing a transition in the industry, mm-hmm. creating new kinds of principal agent problems yeah. that hadn't previously existed, and kind of asking how to use contractual language to sort of mediate mm-hmm. those problems and ensure that both parties had kind of aligned incentives in order to achieve mutually agreeable goals. Exactly. And so partially what I do in the article is I really dive into that whole, uh, that film I mentioned, uh, Seven Days in May. It's sort of a presidential assassination thriller. It deals with Burt Lancaster is this general of the army. He's going to overthrow the president who's trying to create peace with the Soviet Union at the time. It's a pretty fun, good movie with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. But the negotiation negotiation for this film was like the biggest sort of uh, disaster of one can imagine in terms of so many different moving parts, especially between, say, someone like Kirk Douglas, uh, who sees himself as the most important person in any movie he's making, and John Frankenheimer, who, you know, is coming off a couple directorial hits, who also sees himself as the most important person. And like, how do you decide who has control on the set? Who gets to make decisions? Like, production culture is a really, really important concept uh, in academic film studies. It's sort of uh, been written about this uh, by this person John Caldwell who just uh, retired from UCLA. Um, But the idea of who controls a set is so important and those decisions have to be made in a contract and who is going to decide when there's a dispute. How does that get parsed out? And you see Kaplan going through with the other lawyers for not just the studio but for Frankenheimer who he didn't represent. He represented Kirk Douglas in this deal and really just trying to find a way to make sure it works like that's the question i mean as i'm anyone who takes sort of a class on deal making the best deal is the one where everyone feels they win not the one where your side wins the one that gets the deal done and i think that's sort of those ideas had not necessarily been presented in Hollywood under the studio system as we talked about before because it's basically well the only thing that you're still going to work for the studio no matter what it's just how many pictures you can do how much money you're going to make now there's so many different questions you can ask and all those are going to have a ripple effect in terms of not just the um 
I'd say the abstract notion of who has control, but of course the actual physical questions of who has control. And I think someone like Kaplan is not necessarily maybe the pioneer as much as he was the case study that I found that so found, uh, represented all those ideals, although his firm was like the most powerful in Hollywood for a lot of years during the 60s and 70s in which I'm writing about. But I think he seeing how he negotiates and talks to people in the correspondence I found, I really got the sense of that he was really under aware of a lot of these issues of principal agent and trying to get it. I mean, the way when they were trying to finance the picture and which uh, studio they're going to go to. At first, they had a really seemingly good deal with a small studio. And Kaplan writes to Kirk Douglas and says, you can do this. But do you want people to see – do you want a film that's going to be seen by, say, an art house audience, meaning a small audience? Or do you want a blockbuster? Because if you take this deal, you'll have all this control, but you won't get anyone to see it. And he basically kind of conjoles them to saying, wait it out. Let's keep working. Let's invest our own money in getting this project into a better place so we can go to the bigger studios and get a better deal that will sort of, you know, make this film the blockbuster you want it to be. And I think that idea that the lawyer can be in the center of this space and sort of see the world, I find really, really fascinating. Whether it's true or not, you know, there's a lot of lawyers out there that don't think like uh, the way that I imagine Kaplan did. But uh, it's still fun to sort of think through how these people kind of could negotiate these different spaces and arenas Mm. well especially reading these two papers together they really felt like they told a certain kind of counterfactual story Mm -hmm. to me in the sense that it seems like the dominant narrative is that you know legal change in the motion picture industry was driven by these kind of major kind of shifts in sort of the way that the law spoke to how the industry was structured that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. both in terms of like how the duration of a contract could be mm-hmm. or how much vertical control the studios could have, right? But it seems like you're telling a kind of a somewhat different story about a kind of more organic change in the industry that may in some ways it seems like have been more profound uh, in terms of how productions were actually structured than these sort of kind of big ticket legal shifts. Mm-hmm. I think when I started and I wanted to look at this question of lawyers and now the dissertation as I'm finishing it is really about lawyers and contracts throughout it. It was going to be one chapter and now it's the whole thing as dissertations evolve in that way. Um, is that there had been a lot written on these major judicial opinions. You know, I, There's a really, really good book out there, Hollywood and Law, um, that's edited by uh, a whole bunch of people. And it's really, really good. But one of the things that it tries to do is each chapter takes on a major legal uh, judicial opinion and looks at the ramifications of that. It does other things too. I don't want to limit it. But I was kind of interested on, you know, lawyers are being employed day to day and they have to do things certain things for the clients on a day-to-day things, especially when it comes to contract negotiation. This is like the main reason you hire a lawyer in Hollywood. It's not to fight your legal case. It's to negotiate your contract. And this seems to be the thing that is most affecting anyone's life in Hollywood on an individual day. And that was the story that kind of began to interest me is what 
happens when we put the lawyer in the center of this story and not the lawyer who's fighting the big judicial case, um, but the lawyer who, you know, might never step inside of a courtroom, whose job is to never step inside a courtroom, <laughs> right? To to make sure that these contracts always work. And even if there's a problem, well, how do we negotiate our way out of this? Because, you know, going to court is a really, really you know, expensive and reputational problem in Hollywood. Nobody wants to go to court. So I think that's the story that I became interested in and sort of, you know, I kind of place it is that the lawyer is this figure between art and business and this sort of explodes in the way once we get to the 70s where you have all these artistic directors out there, people like your Martin Scorsese's and Francis Ford Coppola's, but you also have studios that are more uh, in a very different financial state than they were in the 30s. They are no longer Ford factories. Most of them are owned by giant conglomerates. Uh, Paramount's bought by Gulf and Western, uh, United Artists by Transamerica. Um, Warner's becomes Time, well, eventually Time Warner, but Warner Communication Group. You know, there are just, the film studios become a smaller part of these larger um, conglomerates. So the financial questions are much different. So I wanted to really look at this question of you have art and business. These things should be in very, very strong conflict with each other, but they're actually in harmony. And that's kind of what drove me to look at these lawyers and really these questions of contracts as sort of this way of just thinking through these problems. We all know nobody necessarily follows the contract exactly to the letter, but I think it asks a lot of the questions and reveals a lot of the problems that have existed in Hollywood and how they get solved on this basis of how you're going to think on a day-to-day. Mm. Well, so so Peter, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on the research process for these two papers and on your dissertation more broadly because you know you're not a lawyer or mm-hmm. technically a legal scholar at all and yet your work is talking i think in a really interesting and sophisticated way about sort of what lawyers do mm-hmm. and the sociology almost of as it were of the kind of role of lawyers in the motion picture industry and you draw on a lot of legal scholarship mm-hmm as well. So, I mean, I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about, like, acculturating yourself to, like, the language of the law Mm -hmm. as a non-legal scholar, and also the process of doing that kind of interdisciplinary scholarship. Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky that when I graduated undergraduate, um, when I graduated um, college, the first thing that I, the first job I ended up getting was in a law firm that did commercial real estate in New York. And I'm really, really thankful to uh, my boss and mentor there, Joshua Stein, who was super helpful and super nice. And, you know, he ha- knew that I wasn't going to go to law school, but taught me a lot about the law. And especially this was a place we're doing commercial contracts. Actually, when I started diving in my film research into law, I sent him one of these contracts from the archive. And I was like, what do you make of this? He said, it's basically a ground lease like we're doing for one of our hotels like how is this any different you know how to read this and I was like I guess I kind of do and I think just kind of sitting there reading contracts and I think someone had put it in my head because I took in a couple classes at USC Gould School of Law to help me sort of uh, learn the language in a little bit but someone said there's no uh, every uh, stipulation of contract is there because of some worry or some worry in the past. And I think that really helped me to read contracts as sort of a humanities scholar and think about the issues that then might be there. I'm really lucky for a resource like Hein Online. And one of the things I tried to do 
was I was thinking about, well, I want to read what lawyers are talking about, not just today, but what are they thinking about in 1965 when I'm researching? What are they thinking about in 1955? Are there changes that I can look at? And I wanted to sort of acclimate myself to what the issues that they're trying to talk about, because if those issues are reflective of the things I'm thinking about uh, in terms of how I'm reading this contract, then clearly there must be something there. And just trying to make those uh, alignments in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, it can be really, really scary to do interdisciplinary research, especially legal research, where I know there's things that I might get wrong necessarily. I might phrase something wrong. I might interpret something wrong. Uh, but that's true of any humanities. You know, we all interpret, like, think about poetry studies or, you know, anything you interpret a poem wrong or uh, new literature comes out, oh, this was not Shakespeare's actual language here in this uh, folio. It was actually in the next folio. You know, these issues come up in the law just as much. So I think one of the things I try and strive for as I do my research is just um, try and put myself in that place of the historical actor. That's all I really want to do is what was this person thinking about what was this lawyer what was this agent thinking about when they wrote this contract in 1965 1967 and i think just trying to branch out from scholarship and pull from just very different ideas and put those together um is a way to try and create something that might seem reasonable and if it's maybe not perfect whatever still reveals something about that era that starts to tell us something different about how it may have operated well, I got to say, I mean, as a legal scholar with an interest in the entertainment industry mm-hmm. and the history of the entertainment industry, I found the work really, you know, qu- quite quite thoughtful and effective at engaging with the legal ideas mm-hmm. and more broadly the legal scholarship that mm-hmm. you sort of mobilize, contemporary legal scholarship, you kind of mobilize within the papers um, mm-hmm. to sort of conceptualize the the issues you're talking about. And and really, I think it, it'll be a, a both both papers are, you know, not only contributions to the humanities, but to legal scholarship as well. Thank you. I mean, I do hope that legal scholars can find something. And, you know, I know every lawyer I ended up talking to at some point for uh, my dissertation was just like, well, when's the book going to come out? And it's like, well... Academia runs a little slow, so wait a few years and it'll be out there. But thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Peter. Thank you. my royalty check to come and it still hasn't come yet it's about a year overdue I guess it's coming from the big royalty check in the sky I waited and the mailman never dropped it in my letterbox Oh, 
I guess it's a big rock to check and sky Ooh, baby But you can Beat the tax man And me All at once 